0: Welcome to Grace. Those of you here, welcome to those of you online. And we finished our fall series entitled Be a Blessing. And even though we finished the series, hopefully we'll apply what we've learned for the rest of our lives, how to bless our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, our friends and family. Now this morning, I want to get back to our series, God's Grand Story. <clears throat> God's Grand Story is a story of the Bible. So let me just pray before we launch back into that. Father, we do pray for the anointing of your spirit on the teaching of your word, that you plant your word in our lives and change us, and make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now remember that the story, God's grand story, begins with the creation of Adam and Eve, but it is headed somewhere. God, God's plan, his story, History is headed somewhere. It has, has an appointed end goal. And God appointed that goal before the foundation of the world. And under his you know, overarching providence, all the events are going to serve <clears throat> that goal. So where is history headed? Where is God guiding history? It's important for us to keep this in mind. Numbers chapter 14 verse 21 tells us, God says this, Indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So that is where God is taking history. That is the end goal. And God is committed to arranging and disposing of all the events of history and even the events of our lives to arrive at that goal. And so just a little bit of review, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 6, we find out that mankind had gotten so evil and headed in such a wrong direction that God has to start over. And so God has to destroy the entire human race except for Noah and his family and start over, headed in the right direction. What's the right direction? That one day, the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. Then we get to Genesis chapter 11. And once again, we find out that man is not filling the earth with the glory of the Lord. In fact, mankind has stayed all in one area, the area of Babel, and built the Tower of Babel. And they're not glorifying God, they're glorifying man. So God, once again, has to enter in and stop the direction it's going, because it's going in a direction which will not accomplish his end goal. So he enters in, he confuses the languages, divides the peoples into the different ethnicities and scatters them across the globe. God had to start over again in Genesis chapter 11 and get things headed in the right direction. What's the right direction? So that one day, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And by the way, this pattern is important for us to understand about God because if your life is headed in the wrong direction and God cannot accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life and through your life with the direction your life is now headed, don't be surprised when he intervenes and disrupts things and begins to set you on a different course so he can accomplish his goal and in, in through your life, get you going the right direction. Well, then we get to Genesis chapter 12. After God has scattered the nations over the earth, he then chooses one man by the name of Abram. God changes his name to Abraham. And he promises that he will make him a great nation That will be a blessing to the nations of the whole world. Why? So that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Well, the nation that Abraham gives birth to, of course, is the nation of Israel. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named named Jacob, and God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And so we have this nation of Israel now that it is their assignment As a nation, to do what? To be a blessing to all the other nations of the whole world. Why? So that one day the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. All right. So we keep on walking through the Bible. Now we get to the end of the book of Genesis, and we see there's been a severe famine, a famine that's caused the Israelites to go to Egypt for food, and God has sovereignly arranged for Joseph one of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, one of the 12 sons, to end up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt and in the world. And what did that do? That allowed for the Israelites to have favor and get the provision that they needed to survive as a nation to accomplish, ultimately, their assignment. Well, over time, what happens Over time, what happens is there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, the Bible tells us. And what does he do? He enslaves the Jewish people. And they're enslaved for 430 years in Egypt. But in their slavery, they begin to call out to the Lord for deliverance. So what does God do? God sends a deliverer. His name is Moses. He leads them out of captivity, out of Egypt, and they begin on their way to the promised land. And that gets us into the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, we see God delivering his people from slavery, rescuing them from their enemies, and headed toward the promised land. Then the next book is the book of Leviticus. We see God now giving explicit instructions on the right way for his people to live and to worship. The next book is the book of Numbers. What happens there? God is guiding, providing for, and discipling his wayward people. Next book is the book of Deuteronomy. What happens there? We hear God patiently reminding the next generation of Israelites to do what? How to live for God, how to be a blessing to the world, and how to bring also personal fulfillment in their lives. So that's the first five books of the Bible. Then we get to after Moses dies, we get to Joshua is now the new leader. And he's the new leader of the Israelites. Now we're into the book of Joshua what does he do? He leads them across the River Jordan as they begin to conquer and take control of the promised land. Let me just give you a simple summary of the whole book of Joshua. The first half of the book of Joshua, you have the Israelites invading and conquering the land of Canaan. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book of Joshua, we have the Israelites distributing the land now to the different tribes who are now going to occupy different parts of the land. Now, after the book of Joshua, we move into the book of Judges. After Joshua dies, we have the book of Judges, and this is a period between Joshua being leader and Saul being the first king of Israel. We have 300 years. It's the book of Judges. Now, I I think it's helpful to think of this period of time to have some clarity in our thinking about this time in history like a stretch of river. Now, in the book of Joshua, the river flows clear and strong. God's people face challenges, they experience solutions, they get victories. Very clear, very strong. But when we get to the book of Judges, it's a very different situation in this uh, metaphor of a river. The river turns murky. In the book of Judges, sluggish as sewage, and the contaminants seep into the flow of the river. Why? Because the people of Israel create trouble for themselves when they allow the evil of their surrounding culture to start to pollute them. And that's the sad story of the book of Judges. But, by, but the uh, grace and faithfulness of God also shine brightly in the backdrop of the sin and rebellion of the Israelites in the book of Judges. Because even though God's people are self-destructing when they begin to be like their pagan neighbors, which, by the way, happens even today. When God's people self-destruct because they begin to become like their pagan neighbors, God is still at work doing what? He's intervening. We see this in the book of Judges. He intervenes again and again to do what? To bring his people back to himself that he might bless them and bring them peace. So there's a cycle we see in the book of Judges, a cycle of the people rebel. They go their own way. What does God do? He brings about, you know, retribution. He brings about circumstances to cause them to, to repent. And that's the third step, repentance. And then there's a the restoration. They come back to God and God blesses them, gives them rest. What do they do? They continue the cycle. They rebel again. And this goes all the way through the book of Judges. But here's what we see in the book of Judges is that the cycle is going downward and each cycle deteriorates worse than the one before it throughout the whole book of Judges. And so what happens when we get to the end of the book of Judges, the Israelites are now asking God for a king. And we want a king just like the nations around us have a king. And so now we're going to enter into the part of the Bible where we have kings leading in Israel. Now, remember the whole Old Testament is divided into six parts. We have beginnings, the book of Genesis, Then we have the wilderness wanderings. We have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we have the promised land. That's the book of Joshua, the book of Judges. And then we move into the United Kingdom under one king, all of Israel. It only lasts for three kings. Then we'll go to divided kingdom, where there's a division between Israelites, the north and the south. And then the final section of the Old Testament is the coming kingdom, captivity in the coming kingdom. So today we're going to actually begin the section of the Old Testament that we're going to call the United Kingdom, where the Israelites are all under one king. Again, it only lasts three kings, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And then the kingdom is divided, and we'll find out why. But before we actually get into that, we need to back up because God actually gives them some guidelines to this time. God says that there comes a time when you're going to want a king, and when you have a king, here's what he has to be like, and here's what he has to do. God says this back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and that's what we're going to look at with our remaining time this morning. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Because God tells the people what the king is to be like and what he is to do. By the way, this passage is very instructive as to what God is looking for in spiritual leadership. We see what God is looking for in the kind of spiritual leader the king needed to be, but it's also true what God is looking for in spiritual leadership today for his people. There are certain qualities we're going to see in Deuteronomy 17, and I want to walk through them with you. The first quality that God is looking for in a leader, or we can say the first heart quality of a godly leader, number one out of Deuteronomy 17, is a trusting heart. A heart that trusts God. Let's read it. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 16. says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say... I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord, your God, chooses. One from among your own countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You shall may not put a foreigner over yourselves who's not your countrymen. Moreover, verse 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. So the king was not to multiply horses. Now that seems like a curious requirement from God. Why would God say that? Because those who multiply horses end up trusting in their horses and their chariots instead of trusting in the Lord. In fact, Isaiah 31, verse 1, says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. See that, so there's a heart issue here. Who you, Who is this leader going to trust in? His own might? Or is he going to trust in the Lord? Well, Psalm 33, verse 16 and 17 give us how things really work. Psalm 33, verse 16, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Ultimately, any deliverance will come from God. Whatever instruments he uses, it comes from God, and we must trust God for his deliverance. What God wants is a king who will trust him, not trust in their horses, not trust in their armies, not go to Egypt and trust in them, but trust him. Now, if you study the, you know, as you study the Old Testament, you find out that almost every king in the Old Testament failed in this. And I want to do something this morning. I'd like us to do just a brief case study of the king who's said to be the wisest of all the kings, King Solomon. And see how he did with these different requirements. How did he do regarding you shall not multiply horses? How did Solomon do there? 1 Kings 4, verse 26. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horses. Horsemen. So Solomon, trusting in his own wisdom and not just obeying the word of God, violates this first requirement of leadership. He does not have a trusting heart. See, when we stop looking to God for provision and protection and deliverance, we we end up, we stop walking in faith. When we stop trusting in God and start trusting in other things for our provision, our protection, there's a a subtle falling away. We're not trusting him anymore. We're trusting ourselves. And I think the evidence of this is when, when we need something, when there's something coming up against us, what's the first thing we do? Is it pray or we start planning? Or we start making calls? Or we start texting? Or we start emailing? Or we start organizing? What's the first thing we do that reveals whether or not how trusting our heart is. Are we going to add, turn to God right away at first? It doesn't mean you don't responsible. Just what what are we trusting and who are we trusting? I got to tell you, many years ago when we were in our older other building across from Arlington High School, we had an issue where we had a, a freeze and we had these our pipes in the wall uh, were frozen, and I thought, oh great. You know, they're going to thaw out, and there's going to be a flood here because I'm sure they busted. And, and, I'm, and I'm starting to get ready to make a phone call because of the frozen pipes. And one of our secretaries, her name is Sharon. She's, she's older, and, and she just, as I'm doing this, she walks over to the wall, lays hands on it, and starts praying. And I'm thinking, isn't that cute? But we need to get a plumber out here. We're about to have a problem. But while she's praying, we're all standing around, and while she's praying, we heard, we heard the water start to run. Went, and, and the pipes cleared up, and there was no problem. And I thought, that's what we need to do, guys. We need to be praying. <laughs> we need to have trusting hearts. We need a simplicity of that kind of childlike faith. We start there, always start there. That's the kind of leaders God's looking for, childlike Faith, simple, trusting hearts. All right, there's a second characteristic the king is supposed to have, the second type of heart, and that is a clean heart. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, And he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. He was not to multiply wives. A polygamist one time challenged Mark Twain. He said, Show me one verse in the Bible against me having two wives. Mark Twain said, that's easy. No man can serve two masters. (laughs) Mark Twain said it, not me. The king was not to multiply wives. Why? The Bible says because because this would turn his heart away from God, very simply. Now, the number one reason for multiplying wives of kings was not alliances. That was not the number one reason. The number one reason was lust. The heart of the king is, the heart of the king that God is looking for is a person that he can trust with kingdom power, and he has to have a heart that's not ruled by lust. Lust will cause a person's heart to turn away from God and the purposes of God on the earth. What did Solomon do? What did he choose? First Kings 11, verse 1 through 4. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, that's concubines, not like the little boy said from Sunday school. He had 300 porcupines, mommy. (laughs) They were concubines. But notice what it goes on to say. And his wives turned his heart away, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Several years ago, there's something you, some of you might remember reading it in the in newspaper, that happened to a family in Northern California. They had a pet mountain lion. And this pet mountain lion grew up as just, you know, a little kitten, whatever they call mountain lion babies. He grew up in the family, and they just thought, they began to think that this is a domesticated pet. And one day, they, after years, of this mountain lion living with them, they walked into a room and found that the mountain lion had killed and partly devoured their four-year-old. Now you think, now why would they allow that to happen? Why would they let that happen? They let it happen because they thought that lion was a domesticated pet. They refused to believe that he was still wild and could hurt them. And here's the truth about lust. If you begin to treat it lightly, it can turn on you and hurt you and spiritually kill you. you know, someone once said sexual sin will take us further than we intended to play, keep us longer than we intended to stay, and cost us more than we were wanting to pay. Proverbs six twenty seven twenty nine 29 puts it this way. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Now, some of you, realistically, in this room, may be entertaining sexual sin right now in your life. You maybe rationalize it. Maybe you convinced yourself that you can't fight the feelings. Well, here's the truth. We are not masters of our own feelings. We have different emotions that come into our life, but we are masters of our own consent. You can't control every emotion that comes, but you can control what you do with it. I will say this. I've watched unclean hearts sideline more guys and gals in ministry leadership than anything I know of. So if you want to be used by God in leadership, you must have a clean heart. We need to repent from when you lust, confess it to God, get our hearts cleansed, and be available to be used by God again. There's a third kind of heart a king the king needed to have and a leader needs to have today as well is a satisfied heart. Deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17 says, "Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself." He was not to multiply gold for himself. Why? Why was the king not to multiply gold? Why? Well, perhaps the reason is given to us in 1st Timothy 6:9 through 11. It says this, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and they snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay, so what did Solomon do, the wisest man? Man. 1 Kings 10, 14, now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now, if you do the math on how much a talent weighs, figure out on today's uh, rate of gold, what gold is valued at today, that's $1.5 billion a year that was coming into Solomon every year, and that's just the gold. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 say this. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently, confidently say that Lord, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So this passage actually tells us the core issue behind an unsatisfied heart, the heart that's longing for more, the heart that's discontented, this passage tells us that what's driving that heart, what's behind that heart, ultimately is fear. Fear of what? Fear of maybe not having enough money for groceries, fear of maybe not having enough money for rent or for the mortgage or not having enough money for the kids' braces or college education or health care or not having enough money for retirement, or fear of not having enough money to drive, drive the right car, or live in the right house, or live in the right neighborhood, whatever. But there's some fear of driving it, according to that passage. What God is saying is this. You don't need to be afraid, because whatever comes in the future, I will be there with you, and I will help you. So what are you afraid of? So you can have a contented heart. And why is this important for a king? If my heart is unsatisfied and it cannot wholly be to the, for the Lord, if my heart is torn, remember Jesus said you can't serve two masters, if, my, if I am divided in my heart and unsatisfied and longing for more and not satisfied and contented, I will not have a heart wholly for the Lord, and then God will not be able to use me like well, he would as a leader. Here's what it says, Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So God is looking over the earth to see whose heart's completely his. And that heart will have to be a satisfied heart to be completely his. And then he strongly supports that person. An unsatisfied heart pursuing money and possessions not completely his, won't be strongly supported. Okay, fourth kind of heart a leader needs to have, the king needed to have, is a seeking heart. Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 19. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, talking about the Old Testament written up to that point. He shall write it out, a copy of it on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. So he was to have a seeking heart. He was to know God. And he was to know God's word. He was to write it out. And if he has any questions about what he's writing about, <clears throat> the Levitical priest is standing right there to answer it. So he's to write it. He's to know it. He's to do it. By the way, this is key to <clears throat> prosperity in the Bible. You know, I, I don't think you can ask anybody in the country, hey, would you like to be prosperous and successful? I think everybody would say, well, yeah, I'd like that. Well, here's what it says about I the role of the Word of God plays in that. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But, listen to this, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So if you have a seeking heart and you're learning the word of God, what's that going to do for the king or for the leader? It's going to do three things. It's going to give him, first of all, the fear of the Lord, Deuteronomy 17:19. It shall be with him talking about the law, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord as God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. The fear of the Lord is that sober reality that you have to give an account to God one day for your life and how that drives what what you're willing to meditate on, what you're willing to speak, and what you're willing to do. And so the person who's in the word of God will have the fear of the Lord. He'll also have a second thing. He'll have humility. Deuteronomy 17 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. It's so important that the king or any spiritual leader is humble. That his heart's not lifted up above his countrymen. He doesn't think he's more important than anybody else. Why is it important for a leader to be humble? Isaiah 66 2 tells us why. But to this one, God says, I will look to him, to him who's humble. And contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. That's the one that God is looking for to be a leader, the one who is humble and contrite. Where does that come from? It comes from being in the word of God. You get to fear the Lord, you gain humility, but you gain a third thing, and that is obedience. That's in Deuteronomy 17 20, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments. To know the word and obey the word. So how does Solomon do? The wisest man. And by the way, that can work against you sometime if you think that you know better than the word of God. If you think, well, yeah, that's, that's what the word says, but, but I see it this way. Solomon, how did he stay as king? First Kings 11, 11. Here's what God says to the prophet. You have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. So Solomon is not a man after God's own heart. God tears the kingdom from him. Now, this can happen to leaders as well today. Now, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm teaching this passage, knowing that we got a, we got a, so many great leaders that, that that really do all these things in this church. This didn't. I'm not teaching this passage thinking I'm trying to straighten out something. But I know all of us, none of us are perfect, and we all want to be those who lead well and that God looks to and God, you know, empowers and uses as leaders. Grace Community Church. And so this is a great passage for the leaders that are in this building or online. Those who aspire to be leaders, it's a great thing for us to understand what God is looking for, the kind of leader that God endorses, the kind of leader that God supports kind of leader that God uses. So what I'd like to do in closing is because we're kind of, we're just, we're finishing a series, but we're ramping up to so many ministries we're kicking off right now, is to have a time of prayer for our leaders. So if you are one of our elders or elder couples, pastoral uh, staff or pastoral couples, please stand. If you're any of our life group leaders or leader couples, Life groups, please stand if you're any of our ministry leaders, Ventureland, youth, college, young adults, jail ministry, ESL, men's ministry, women's ministry, nobody standing. Please stand. Stand up, guys. Stand up. If you're any of the 55 ministry leaders that we had at our ministry fair, stand up. You know, So we have a, we have a number of, of leaders in this room that are standing. And if you're a leader and you're still sitting down, then you're insubordinate. So go ahead and stand up and, so we can pray for you. And I just, we want to have time right now just to pray for our leaders, that we'll be, we be the kind of leaders that God will use. And so, Father, we do pray. We ask you, O oh Lord, that we'd be the kind of leaders, our hearts would be, the, have that we'd have those kind of hearts today, O oh Lord, that we would have the kind of hearts, Lord, that really trust you, that we'd have clean hearts Oh, Lord, that we would be trusting, we'd have clean hearts, Lord, that we would also, Lord, have satisfied hearts, we'd have seeking hearts, that we'd walk, Lord, in the fear of the Lord, in humility and obedience. So, Lord, we pray right now, would you fortify the leaders of Grace Community Church in every ministry? Would you fortify us by the power of your Holy Spirit Would you strengthen us, Lord, where we sin, Lord, even now, if you spoke to any of us about any of these things, Lord, we confess that now. Lord, would you cleanse us? Would you fortify us? Would you empower us? Would you take us into this next chapter, Lord, to be the greatest days of Grace Community Church? And that we never look back talking about the good old days, but take us into a next chapter glorifying you, Lord. And we pray for those who were in this room or online that aspire to be a leader that want to be used by you like that, Lord. And one, one day, I pray, Lord, that even now, you begin to help them develop these heart qualities, that they would be that kind of leader that you can endorse, that you can you know, empower and anoint and use. Lord, we also pray for, that you take note in Jesus' name of every demonic scheme against any of our leaders, and you cause every scheme against our leaders to fail in Jesus' name. We pray for good health and good strength, O oh Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you would now give us wisdom that would always not be like Solomon and think we have a better idea than your word, but we'd have wisdom enough to know, wisdom enough to know that your word is always right and always best. So Lord, we pray for the blessing on Grace Community Church and that it would bless our community and bless the nations. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Now would everybody please stand and I want to, going to close and just prayer for everybody in just a moment. If this is your first Sunday here or you're just new, you've been here a few weeks, you haven't got a chance to meet me and my wife. Tracy will be over in this welcome area. We'd love to meet you. If you have any questions for our staff in the connection corner. Next week, you don't want to miss next week, we're having our international Sunday International Fair. It's one of the most awesome Sundays of the year. You definitely want to come, bring friends. You'll, they'll love it. And if you have a prayer request, there'll be some leaders down here to pray for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for clear instruction in what you're looking for. And we pray, Lord, for the grace for us all to walk in it. I pray for your blessing on everyone in this room. Use us to be a blessing everywhere we go now, this week in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great day, great week.